They've moved away. The heart is now not quite where it used to be. He has some issues with God. Some of them are related to deep pain and deep disappointment. And he gets that invitation in the mail. Mac, it's been a long time since we've talked. How about we meet up this weekend at the shack? Signed, Papa God. I think all of us, if we're prepared to open up our mail, would find that there's an invitation in it where God would like to talk to us. That God actually wants to have a conversation with us. Because Christianity is more than clicking through 52 Sunday services, 52 sermons, 52 song sets. It is about being in a real intimate space with this God. And he just doesn't want to deal with the surface stuff, does he? He actually does want to deal with the stuff that bothers us. So welcome to church today. If you're with us for the first time, that's the context of where we're going. And we'll be today looking at one of the big questions that is asked in this book. But it's asked by us all the time. And uh, we ask the same question ourselves on a regular basis. And it's the whole idea, does God forgive everyone? So, there we go. Uh, excuse my Vietnamese if you uh, can speak the language today, but Fan Thi Kim Phuc is a Vietnamese best known as a child depicted in this Pulitzer Prize winning photograph taken during the Vietnam War on the 8th of June 1972. This photo is credited to changing the direction of the war. It's a pretty amazing idea to think that a photo can change war. And of course, it's particularly graphic. It shows this little girl at nine years of age running naked on a robe, severely burned uh, on her back as a result of a bomb attack and being uh, covered with napalm. Later, uh, this young lady became a devoted follower of Christ and she sought out the pilot who had dropped the bombs on her village and she offered him forgiveness. This is what she said. Forgiveness made me free from hatred. And I still have many scars on my body and severe pain most days. But my heart is cleansed. Napalm is very powerful. But faith, forgiveness and love are much more powerful. And we would not have any war at all if everyone would just learn how to live with true love hope and forgiveness if this if that little girl in that picture can do it ask yourselves can you what a great great real life story of the power of forgiveness and the book the shack is a good book for those who are afflicted with deep pain that have suffered a massive disappointment or have experienced great loss in your life it's actually not a great book if you're comfortable and complacent, you won't relate. You might profit from reading something else. But one of the big questions that's raised in the book is, does God forgive everyone? And this is a very live issue in Christianity today, and it's been a very live issue for about 2,000 years. It's an old problem. Does God punish people with eternal fire? Do babies go to lost limbos? Can Judas Iscariot be redeemed? Can God save Hitler? One of the most notorious serial murders of modern times was 
a gentleman by the name of Ted Bundy. He was executed for the murder and rape of 30 young women in 1989. And he is suspected of being responsible for at least another 20 victims. Just before his execution, Dr. James Dobson, from Focus on the Family, was granted uh, an opportunity to interview him. And it's one of the most absolutely chilling interviews you'll ever see. Because this serial killer is charismatic, he's handsome, he's intelligent, and he seems to be very much aware. And he describes how his journey into pornography took him to places that led to this terrible um, behavior. And Bundy makes a confession for faith in Jesus on this movie, just hours before he's executed. So there's understandably much interest, probably a lot of morbid curiosity as well. And there's also this whole thing. He made a confession for Jesus. Would God, could God forgive Ted Bundy? Good question, isn't it? So we are looking at the author of the shack who want, does not, he, he wants to communicate that God's default character is love. 1 John 4, 8 and 16, God is love. It's really important to hear that. And this is a welcome correction to often the cultural Christian cliche, the view of God where he's an angry judge. He's the divine party pooper. He just wants to messes with your fun. He's just a big, cosmic, grumpy old man. However, I want to go deeper today. Is that okay? Because God's love includes his anger. You see, real love includes the pain and the consequences of rejection. Real love contends. Real love is jealous. Real love is passionate. Real love is glad when it's embraced. It's sad when it's rejected. And it's mad when it's betrayed. That is real love. If someone was to break into my house tonight and then start to rape my wife, there would be something wrong with my love if I was not motivated to intervene. There'd be something quite not right with my love if I was to be passive about that and not engage. If my wife was to come to me and says, Mike, you know, I love you, but I also want to have an affair with someone else, there would be something wrong with my love if that did not induce a reaction of jealousy. You're looking at me a bit strange. That's real love, isn't it? You know, so here's one of the great things that we have to wrestle with, with the image of our God that we often have to process beyond our Sunday schools and our nice sermons that want to teach you how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you give your life to Jesus, you'll never have a problem. Heard any of those sorts of sermons? To actually see what the Bible says. And one of those passages in the Bible that I think strives for balance is in the book of Romans chapter 11, verse 22, where it says, Behold and consider the goodness and the severity of God. Who likes the goodness of God? Hallelujah. I'm here because of the goodness of God. Can anybody say amen? 
Can anybody wave me and say today, I'm here today because of the goodness of a loving God. Yet there is another side to God's personality. It's included in his love and that is that there is a severity to God. He is actually white hot mad at sin. Not at the sinner, but at sin. If you want to understand the heart of God towards you this morning, look at the cross of Jesus. If you want to know how much God loves you, then look at the cross of Jesus. And if you want to know how much he hates sin, then look at the cross of Jesus. The book of Romans says this great passage, but you know, it actually locks down on that, some of these big questions. And we all, and we know that all things work together for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his dear son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Because he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, the imagery here in the Greek is quite profound from my, from my understanding. He who did not spare his own son. It's actually the same language as in 1 Peter 2.24, which says, and we are healed by his stripes. Uh, great, great passage, isn't it? Great passage of promise. The word stripes there is actually singular in the Greek, which means that we're actually healed by the stripe that Jesus received. It's the whole idea of actually not the 40 lashes of the whip, but the holistic total stroke of God on his son to punish sin. And in Romans chapter 8, the idea is that God did not hold back. So if you can imagine, there is the back of Jesus open up to the whip and God the Father's on the other side. He could actually pick up the whip. It's only going to be once because it's the stroke of God. He could actually go and says, I'm going to go a bit light in here. He is my son. I love him. I'm going to just hold back a little bit. When I was raising my children, of which I'd like to do a rewind on one day, but um, this was one of the things I'd do. Samuel, I need you. Come, come, just quick, 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 quick. Oh, he's so fit. So I, I would, so I would ask him. I'd ask my son Tristan. Tristan, do you want mercy? Or do you want judgment? Do you want grace or judgment? What do you think my son would have said? (laughs) Do you want grace or judgment? You're going to go for grace. Funny about that. So I would actually go, you know, if we're doing this, I'm going to hit you. He said, yes. So I said, okay. And I'll go, bang, like that. Okay? And he would actually cry anyway. (laughs) Really nice. But who took the penalty? Father took the penalty. 
So I'll do that for my kids. Thank you. Let's give Samuel a... You did that so well. <laughs> but in the imagery here, God actually leaned back and he gave the full weight of his wrath against sin and evil for all time in this one movement against his son. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so, what shall we say? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Well, God's not going to condemn, is he? <laughs> it is Christ who died, and furthermore, he is also risen, even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. He's the advocate. He's the lawyer. He's in heaven right now. And we understand, fast forward, Job and the courtrooms of heaven, revelations and the devil's still there, 24 hours a day, bringing accusations against Mike, bringing accusations against other people, 24 hours a day. And the devil's on one side of the throne. He's the prosecutor. And he's saying to God the Father, Mike has failed. Mike thought this. Mike did this. Mike did this. And Jesus, my lawyer, is on the other side. And he's saying, forgiven, 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 forgiven. Hallelujah! You've got Jesus on your side. He's never going to agree with the devil. That's exciting stuff. Really exciting. So who shall separate us then from this love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we killed all day long, we counted sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in a moving part of the story of the shack, as uh, trying to wrestle with now, what happens? Does God forgive forever? Mac is again placed by Sophia. Wisdom. This is a heavy chair. In the place of judging. You know, you think God did the wrong thing. What would you do, Mac? And so Sophia presents to Mac a problem. You've got five kids, Mac. You love all of them, don't you? Yep, I love all of them. Well, two of them have to go to hell. Which two would you pick? And he says, well, I can't do that. He says, no, you've got to pick two. He says, I can't do that. I'm a loving father. How can I choose two? I mean, some kids are better than other kids. Yeah? Some kids are easier to get along with than other kids. That always worries me. The kids you fight most with are the ones that are like you. That, that, that's frightening, isn't it? I know where my daughter's got her rebellion from. From my mother, of course. <laughs> no. <laughs> For me. And of course, he's in this place of absolute torment. And as a father, he ends up getting to that place where he says, I, I just can't make that choice. Please let me go to hell for them. Let me 
take the punishment. Let me do that. At that moment, Sophia says, okay, now you're starting to sound like Jesus. And we are led by the author's um, skill here into an idea. This is the heart of God. And this is the dilemma of God. How does a just God love unjust people? How does a God full of love actually rescue rebels? This is actually the thing. And the shack gives us an insight there of what is the deal. God did it himself and he takes the risk of love to rescue us rebels. However, and this is where I choose to treat you as a mature audience, the shack's presentation of God as forgiving, whilst essentially positive, but can I add some clarification and correction? Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate that. I need that. The God of the shack seems to promote the idea that forgiveness is automatic. It's implied that everyone is forgiven, from Bundy to Hitler, from Stalin to Pol Pot, all are forgiven. However, the Bible teaches that forgiveness is sadly conditional. Forgiveness is available for all, but is only enjoyed by some. We need to separate the potentiality from the actuality of forgiveness. And if I can simply say it this morning, make it real simple, forgiveness is given to those who say, Sorry. You're helping me out. Thanks, Bob. Because that's actually an important part of it. So today, I'm actually going to take you on a journey that may actually break your brains. Because there's a common Christian fallacy in the church today, and it's the idea that you must forgive everyone. But the Bible actually doesn't teach that. I mean, what would Jesus do? Isn't it Christian to forgive? But what does the Bible really say? So forgiveness is what is required when one party commits an offense against another individual. In the Bible, this is called sinning. It's interesting. In the Bible, when you upset someone, it's actually called sin. Because it breaks down relationship. And as we looked at the fact that God is actually probably more better understood as a circle, a family, of free, of relationship and community. Anything that breaks relationship is anti-God. So sin always has serious consequences. This includes the breakdown of a relationship between the two parties involved. And it also breaks your relationship with God. If you've got problems on the horizontal level with unforgiveness, then you're going to have problems on the vertical level with God. Bible says it clearly. If you say you love God but you hate your brother, what does the Bible say? Something about you're a liar? You make God out to be a liar? I wouldn't want to call God, God, you're a liar. Oh, I wouldn't want to go there. So the effects of sin, for the effects of sin to be reversed, it's essential that the cost or the penalty incurred by the sin is paid in address. And then only then, only then can forgiveness be granted by God and by people. So here's the process of forgiveness. It's just helpful to set out a few of the uh, ways that this takes place. 
So I need two people. Okay. I can't see very well. Charity and Bob. Charity and Bob. Okay. Come together. Charity had to put her shoes on. Because she's being holy, it's holy ground, so on. So, so these people are currently in relationship with each other. They like each other, they talk and whatever, and then Bob does something quite bad, all right? Um, what did he do to you, Charity? Steal your Kit Kat, cook your car bay. Okay, okay. You were pulling into the disabled car bay and Bob was already there and he swung in. No, no, okay. <laughs> Okay, so Bob's now done something wrong. Okay, so you are now upset with Bob because Bob's done the wrong thing. Okay? And he doesn't care. Most times he doesn't care. So can you turn around and fold your arms? Okay. Now, the Bible makes someone responsible in this relationship to fix it. Is it Bob? If you think it's Bob, put your hand up. Is it Bob's responsibility to fix it? Is it charity's responsibility to fix it? Who's not going to put up their hands or whatever I do? Okay. No, you just don't know, do you? Okay. According to the Bible, you know that big book you've got at home with the leather on it for the dust, you know? Whose responsibility is it to take the next action? Is it charity's or is it Bob's? It's actually charity's responsibility because Bob has offended her And Luke chapter 17, verse 3 says, if a brother sins against you, then go and rebuke him. Okay? Matthew chapter 18 says, if someone offends you, then you're meant to take, meant to go and check them. Okay? So now you've got to go tap him on the shoulder. Okay? Well, would you turn around temporarily? Pam's taking notes, you realize. (laughs) His arms are still folded. Can you wave your finger at him? Okay, so this is what's happening there. Now, whose responsibility is it to change now? Bob's. So what's Bob got to do now? He's got to say sorry. And can you add to that, Bob? Sorry and... And he's got to ask for forgiveness. Please forgiveness. And then... And then restitution. Yes, that's good. This is what forgiveness really is. It's just not saying I'm sorry. It's also changing the way that you are. <laughs> Bob is really ex- <laughs> Pam's really excited now. <laughs> He's gone to a whole new level. <laughs> and can I make restitution? You know, if I if I if I'd hit your car, for example, I'll, I'll pay for that. And then he says, "Will you forgive me?" And at that moment, the responsibility transfers back to charity. And what she have to do then? Yes. And then relationships restored. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Just So that's the way it's meant to be played out. And Scripture's quite clear on this. So just three more short points. We'll land, land the plant, plane and, and get you out of here. One is, guys, sin is irreversible. 
We live in a, a control Z world. Who knows what control Z means? I need house lights just to see who. House lights. Who knows what control Z is? One, two, three, four, five. I'm sure more of you know what control Z is. <laughs> okay. If you use any sort of computer program and you've made a mistake, the shortcut of pushing the control key and the Z key at the same time undoes your mistake. So for some of you, you've just been skilled up a whole level. I live on control Z. <laughs> it means, un you, yeah, Kerry said you'd charge $100 for teaching you that. <laughs> I did it for free. <laughs> control Z. Or if you're a gamer, it's reload. You know, re what does it say? Respawn. <laughs> That's more for your Counter-Strike and your Team Fortress. You respawn. Yeah, you get the headshot, but you come back to life. Friends, sin is not reversible. Every time you make a decision to live selfishly, you do suffer a penalty. By the grace of God, sometimes those penalties are not extreme and they don't come all the time. But every sin takes you a little bit further away from God. Every sin deafens you a little bit more to the voice of God. Every sin will take a little bit more of your conscience away. Every sin has a consequence and it is irreversible. It becomes woven into your personality and to the fabric of your being. And yes, there is a great and a mighty God who can still use that for His glory. But don't think that sin is something that's easy and something that's light. Number two, sin incurs a penalty and someone has to pay. God can deal with the penalty in eternity. We have to deal, deal with the penalty here on earth. And uh, the illustration is if someone runs into my car, I can forgive them, but someone still has to pay. Someone still has to go to the panel beater. Someone still has to take out money. It still has to be fixed. Someone has to pay. Sin incurs the penalty. And here, this is where it gets a bit interesting. Sin is not always forgiven. One of the clearest places where sin is not forgiven is when we fail to forgive others. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Because the text says, if you don't, your Father will not forgive you. But we have redefined forgiveness as actually biblical forgiveness is actually not excusing someone and releasing them until they've asked for forgiveness. Okay? Here's, here's the thing that you haven't heard in church life. You have to forgive someone God requires you to forgive someone when they ask for forgiveness. That's when you are obligated under God to be like God. That's the great thing is if you go to God today and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm genuinely repentant. I'm sorry about what I've done and I'm going to change. Please transform me. We know that God will always say what to that? Yes, I forgive you. 
But if I say to God, I'm just going to continue to do my own thing and I'm going to continue to go this way, I'm sorry that my sin hurts me, I'm sorry it might hurt other but I'm going to continue to do my stuff. Will God forgive me? No, He won't. He will hold me accountable for those choices. And so here's the great challenge. The Bible says that we will not be forgiven for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that's a whole new sermon, so I won't go into that at great detail. But clearly, there is something that will never be forgiven, and it's the way that we treat the Holy Spirit. And there are those who are, and this is again controversial, outside of the gospel. Mark 4 verse 12 and other scriptures says things like, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those who are outside, everything is said to them in parables so that they may never see, they may never perceive, they may never hear and turn, lest they might be forgiven. Interesting. So forgiveness is available to those who pursue it, for those who want it, for those that allow a change of heart to take place over their sin. It's just not God saying it doesn't matter. Forgiveness, in the first sense, is the Christian's default position because all Christians are forgiven people. Hallelujah. Therefore, we're under under obligation to forgive others who ask for forgiveness. That's the bit you may not have heard before. The theological underpinning for this is that we are to be like God. And God does not forgive people who do not ask for forgiveness. Those who continue to live in ways that reject the gospel, reject his offer of salvation, will not experience the forgiveness of God. In Matthew 18, the person who fails to respond to the challenge to repent is introduced to increasing levels of accountability and authority, and then ultimately the church uses the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. When the offending party is not prepared to admit guilt and repent, there can be no resolution or reconciliation. And the Bible says that you're to treat them as a tax collector and a publican. These were despised people in the ancient world. It probably hasn't changed too much. (laughs) However, this should be balanced with the fact that Jesus is called a friend of publicans and tax collectors. So there's still a gospel-orientated relationship with people that have not responded to repentance, to discipline, but they are now outside of the family. To put it plainly, please, Mike, help, my brain's hurting. Unforgiveness in the New Testament sense is withholding reconciliation and relation from someone who's admitted fault, shown remorse, and transformed behavior. I'll say that again. Put it plainly. Unforgiveness in a biblical New Testament sense is the withholding of reconciliation and relationship from someone who's admitted fault, shown remorse, and transformed behavior. In the book, The Shack, there's a little comment on hell. And again, we don't have time in this sermon to go to a great deal of detail over hell. But the shack defines as a place reserved for those who stubbornly refuse God's love. So 
I love what C.S. Lewis says on this, to quote him in full this time rather than just paraphrase him. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God will say at the end, thy will be done. All that in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, without that self-choice, there could actually be no hell. No soul that seriously or constantly desires joy will miss heaven. Those who seek it shall find it. Those who knock it shall be opened. So it's in my view that the images of hell that we get from the New Testament, particularly from the lips of Jesus, are pictures of a terrible state. But not one with God actively torturing people. It's more likely it's the torment of eternally living alone with one's own hellish character away from the loving presence of God. In uh, C.S. Lewis' book, The Great Divorce, this is a theological analogy, probably similar to what the shack is, uh, of um, someone dying and going to hell. And you're led on this journey as you read the book, and uh, you know, it's well written, and you only begin to realize what's happening as you go. The book was originally going to be titled, C.S. Lewis wanted to uh, put the title on the book as, Who Goes Home? Who Gets to Go Home? I like that title. Opposed to The Great Divorce which is actually a response to a William Blake poem where he talks about the fact that heaven and hell have been merged together now on this place called that we call earth. For some people now, we're living in a pretty good heaven and some people are living in a pretty bad hell now. So it's a reaction to something in the popular culture. But he's actually asking the question, who goes home? And the story has now been made a stage play. It's going to come out as a, as a movie eventually. Uh, it's in production right now. And there's this man, he dies. He doesn't realize he's quite died now. And he's woken up in a place called Greytown. It's just, everywhere you look, it's just gray. No, dark gray, light gray, light, light gray. It's just gray. And he's at a bus stop and he's waiting for this bus and you start to meet these characters. And you suddenly start to realize he's not happy. The people on the bus aren't happy. Nobody's happy. And they're starting to um, react to each other in a way. You know, one person he meets on the bus, this guy is just full of himself. He can't stop talking about how wonderful he is. And then there's other person. No one's enjoying each other on this bus. And as they go, you start to realize that they're ghosts. And uh, they are being transported. They've actually been transported to heaven. But the closer they get to heaven, the more they don't want to go the more they find it difficult. And they choose to actually say, no, I'd rather just stay here thing, please. And they get off the bus into another place that's just grey. And they want to live alone in this terrible loneliness. And there's a scene in the, in the book where uh, they're beginning to talk and says, well, out there, if you see the light on a good day, uh, that, that's where Mrs. Smith lives. She's, she's 10,000 miles in that direction. And over there, we haven't seen Caesar for years. He, he's like just drifted off. And all this is just a grey town that people are spreading away from each other into more loneliness, more lockdown on themselves, more having to wrestle with the fact that they don't want to be of God. C.S. Lewis actually points out in the book, I don't know, it's an interesting thought, that they could actually still go to heaven, that the door's not closed. God hasn't so like shut the door on heaven. 
The doors left open at any time they could get back on the bus and they could be transported to heaven. But they don't choose to go. They want to stay sad, stay mad, stay bad. And they don't want other people. Echoes what Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. It's, it's fascinating. Whereas what we've been caught into in life and majesty and glory and relationship, wonderful relationship. So this morning, does God forgive everyone? The answer to that is he doesn't. It is conditional. And behold the goodness and the severity of God. He's an incredibly kind, good father. If we as prodigals return home, we will find him running down the street, arms out wide, ready to embrace, ready to kiss us on our cheek, ready to put sandals on our feet. Isn't that amazing? We still stink like pigs and he's going to actually put the best robe on the house. He's going to kill the cow and there's going to be a party. That's a great God. But if we choose never to go home, we will meet an angry God. A God whose heart's been broken. And a God is going to say, what did you do with my son? When uh, the Jews in John's gospel are given the choice, do you want Jesus the Christ or do you want uh, Barabbas? There's an interesting play on words going on because one is Barabbai, son of the rabbi. The other one is Barabbas as the, uh, the rebel, the thief, the violent man. And the, cry, the crowd cries out, give us Barabbas. Away with Jesus. Crucify him. And the word amen is thrown in there. It doesn't come through in all our English versions. But the word amen is, is the word, let it be done. And effectively, they cry out a blood oath. Let his blood be upon us. The word there for blood is the word damn. Damn us. You see, one way or another, you will all get to wear the blood of Jesus. You will get to wear the blood of Jesus as an incredible coat that washes away all your sins and all your failures so that you can be righteous forever. Or you will wear the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood is on my hands. God, I did not need your son. I reject what you did when you sent Jesus. When he hung upon the cross, I'm good enough. He didn't need to do that for me. You did not need to send the Son of God because I am actually my own God. God, I don't want that. I don't know if you really want to say that to a God who loves his Son. You may find he's a bit angry with that response. One way or another, we will actually have to deal with the blood of Jesus. His blood is on our hands. His blood is on our hands. We can apply it to our lives and live clean. No condemnation in Christ Jesus at all. Hallelujah. Or we can walk out arrogant and say, nice man, but I'll still do it my own way. There's the invitation, isn't it? Forgiveness is available through that room. Maybe Ravi will get up later on and say, I want to just give you that offer and 
meeting the side. It's available, isn't it? But you've got to say yes in order to receive that. So just to close, I'd like to summarize by saying, on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ, I would like to apologize to people that have been given trite advice. You just need to forgive. You just need to forgive. We've been sending them back into abusive relationships, into systems that hurt and whatever. You know, I, I don't know how many times, you know, a, a battered wife might have come to a pastor somewhere and said, you know, he just beats me up and, you know, I do my best to love and all the rest, but he's just violent. I can't control him. And that pastor says, well, the Bible says you've got to forgive. I apologize for that wrong advice. It's just wrong advice. Forgive when he comes to you and say, I am so sorry. I now have a revelation of my sin. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, and that I've also destroyed my relationship with you. I now have a revelation, and I've now changed my thinking. I've changed my feeling. I've changed my will about that. I am in the place of biblical repentance, and dear, you can put the name in there, forgive me. Absolutely, that's when you forgive. That's Bible. So I want to apologize for all those that said you've got to forgive. How much have we tolerated inappropriately sin in the church of Jesus Christ? Because someone's just thrown away that expression, you've got to forgive me. You know, with the fist shaking, the snarl on the face. No, I actually don't have to forgive you. I'll pray with you. Now, I'm not encouraging that we get into a place of revenge. I think there are psychological benefits for releasing, but that's also being in the place of biblical repentance, which is, I am willing, God, at any time to embrace that individual who's hurt me and to give them forgiveness. So that's, that's healthy. I have let it go, but I've not exposed myself to ongoing abuse. So I want to apologize to you for today if you've experienced that because there is a place where God wants you to be safe and to be secure, and God does not tolerate sin either. And for those who are here today, and we're still wrestling with issues where people have deeply hurt us and deeply offended us, I would love to pray with you this morning and see God do some wonderful things in releasing you to a new day and into a new place. It is the gift that you give yourself when you forgive, you suddenly let a prisoner free and you discover that you were the prisoner being held by that. So I'm going to have the musicians up and uh, we're going to just play a song to close with. They're going to release you uh, after that for fellowship in the foyer. But I'll be here to pray with you and uh, minister to you as you feel. But uh, Ravi, uh, where, where are you, Ravi? Ravi's just going to come and talk to you about